Welcome everyone to Nerd Unscripted. This is your host, Tony Leidig. And in today's show, we're going to talk about the experiments. And what I mean by that is that whenever I was a kid, I was, well, still am actually, uh, intensely curious. I've always been a very curious person. I'm not sure why. Um, it just is what it is. Um, it drove my parents crazy because I was always questioning everything. And some of you can probably relate to that. But I just wanted to know why things worked the way they worked, how things did the way they did. And actually, a lot of the experiments that I uh, did as a kid and later as a teenager were really the uh, underlying factor uh, in part for this show uh, because, you know, once a nerd, always a nerd, and I definitely was a nerd. As a matter of fact, I was talking to my mom at breakfast this morning and uh, Kristen as well, and we were uh, talking about how things were whenever I was a teenager, and, uh, you know, I was so much uh, an introvert, uh, a nerd, if you will, that uh, it's, it's so funny looking back. It's like a completely different person. Um, whenever I was in high school, I refused to wear jeans or anything like that. Always had to be dressed pants and a button-up shirt. Um, so t-shirts out of the question. Now I live in t-shirts. Um, I was very, very shy. My first date wasn't until I was 18, and that was right after I graduated high school. Um, I was late getting my driver's license. I think I was 18 when I did that, too. Um, and if a girl were to say hi to me, I would uh, just as soon turn and run the other way <laughs> because I didn't know how to respond to, you know, to females. Um, unless they were nerds and we were talking about science or math, and that was a different story. And so uh, the year after, or the summer after I graduated, I kind of had an epiphany of sorts, and that was that if something didn't change, um, I was going to lead a very lonely life. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it took me a while to kind of figure out what that meant. I mean, I didn't even listen to music. Um, other than a little bit, you know, that my parents had on and uh, music that I was exposed to because my dad was a recording uh, engineer part-time. And so that meant, like, a lot of the folks that he recorded was um, he and his friend John. Uh, they recorded a lot of country but more bluegrass. So, you know, um, whenever you're like 9 or 10 years old, bluegrass isn't necessarily the most exciting type of music that you want to hear. Um but at the house, you know, Dad would listen to, like, Creedence Clearwater Revival and groups like that. And he was a, a decent guitarist and musician, so I had some music. But, like, I didn't go out of my way to listen to the radio or, you know, the Walkman, which was the thing back in the day. Um, it just wasn't me. But whenever... Um, Whenever that summer came, after I graduated high school, and I came to that realization, then it was a, a matter of how do I change? How do I reinvent myself? And so what I did is kind of funny in a way. I had already started working. Um, uh, 
uh, I, well, that summer I worked at an orchard, local orchard, picking peaches and apples. And then I got a job at a restaurant shortly after that, um, working in the kitchen. And I took all the money that I was making and dumped it into clothes. I started buying copies of GQ magazine to see how, you know, men dressed who were fashionable. I started listening to the radio and rock music. And um, anyway, uh, listening to the DJ and how they talked and literally wrote out like uh, conversation starters, uh, you know, that people would have to respond to uh, more than just like if you say hi, hi, and then it's done you know, how to engage people in conversation. So I spent that summer literally reinventing myself. And this is like 1980. So you know what 80s music and clothes and everything look like, you know, parachute pants and all that stuff is pretty funny, but I did it. And uh, I really swung from being very introverted and shy to very outspoken and flamboyant, um, if anything. Uh, fortunately, I kind of came back to the middle ground a little bit but going back before that leading up to that first transformation of mine um, as I mentioned I was always curious uh, and from the time I was probably gosh maybe seventh grade so 13 14 years old um, for whatever reason, I was fascinated with blowing stuff up. <laughs> I was fascinated with explosives. And, I mean, some of the stuff that I did back in those days, I'd probably go to jail for now and be labeled as a terrorist. But um, it was just innocent fun. And I lived in a small town at the foot of the mountains, so you could get away with, you know, uh, stuff like blowing up a gallon of gasoline and, you know, those kinds of things. Or digging pits in the ground and putting nitrate fertilizer and fuel oil in it and blowing that up um which by the way in case you were ever wondering about how that works it gives you a really nice eight to ten foot size crater um <laughs> which i did in my backyard um but it was dangerous for me because i had access to gunpowder um i lived next door to a munitions expert who was a ex-green beret and uh, so we would take CO2 cartridges and fill them with black powder and put fuses on them and, I mean, all kinds of things. And uh, plus, I had access to, like, uh, quarter sticks of dynamite and all that kind of stuff. So, um, <laughs> very interesting childhood. But, uh, so those were some of my uh, early experiments. They, it almost always involved blowing stuff up. I was heavily into model rocketry as a kid, and I thought it was awesome. I mean, I'm, I still find it fascinating. I don't fly rockets now. I just have them sitting in my office. But, um, you know, ultimately I figured out, you know, I could take cotton and soak it in gasoline and then glue the nose cone on and it would blow up. So that's the kind of stuff I would do, you know, launch like a hamster which I did once um he made it out okay I didn't blow him up but <laughs> it was kind of fun nonetheless um so that's how it all kind of started and it really reinforced my interest in science um that and I was really good at it um I had a good uh mind for math uh to me 
math was more like just learning a language. And so I, I spoke it very fluently. And as I've shared before, um, my idea of a good time uh, back whenever I was a teenager, when we would travel or whatever, um, was to like manually calculate square roots. And typically I went with the square root of five because it's unsolvable. Uh, it goes on to infinity. Um, and so I would see how far out I could calculate it, you know, in the amount of time we were driving from Pennsylvania, like down to visit relatives in West Virginia or whatever. And uh, <laughs> so I would do that. And then I discovered scientific notation, um, you know, that where it shows you like the chemical composition of compounds. And uh, that's when things got really interesting from a, from a chemistry perspective anyway. Um, my parents bought me several chemistry sets uh, early on and discovered that that probably wasn't the smartest thing because I would always try to figure out what would happen if you know, that was probably my favorite game. What would happen if, um, you know, so what would happen if you mixed all the chemicals in the entire chemistry set together? Or what would happen if you would just mix certain ones together? And so I did stuff like that all the time, which is why on multiple occasions, my bedroom was on fire, <laughs> which I, you know, ultimately, um, put out, um, like, uh, thermometers that you get for like the aquariums and stuff they have like the little beads in the bottom the little bbs and stuff um and then that plastic stuff that holds the bbs in place you know to give it weight to hold well i decided i wanted to try to pop one of them one time like if you give it enough heat then the well it wasn't mercury by then but it would like i surmised that it would just shoot out the top well it didn't um <laughs> what happened instead was you know, holding this uh, uh, this thermometer with a set of clamps over a Bunsen burner, because, you know, all 14-year-old kids need a Bunsen burner. And um, all of a sudden, it, it blew like I suspected that it would, but the plastic was extremely flammable. And then, of course, it got on the BBs, and the BBs went everywhere. So I, it kind of looked like a volcano erupting in some respects because I had these little flaming balls uh, literally going all over my bedroom and catching everything on fire which ultimately I was able to put out but um, <laughs> I remember it very vividly because like literally two minutes after it happened mom called everyone for dinner you know called everybody down to have dinner and so I'm running around the bedroom trying to put out fire um, and uh so again, going back to curiosity, um, I read somewhere that you could have um, getting some interesting results mixing certain types of chemicals. And whenever I would look at the scientific notation, it was like, well, this should cause this. And so, you know, we'll see what happens. And so, you know, I would do things like um, mix uh, bleach with chlorine crystals and stuff like that, which... Uh, I would strongly recommend that you don't do that um, just because it creates a, a form of acid that will eat through anything. Um, you know, holes in jeans and burn marks on my body and holes that literally went through my entire mattress um, 
not good. <laughs> but, you know, again, it goes back to my curiosity. And uh, probably from a chemistry perspective, and there's a lot of different ways that I did experiments. From a chemistry perspective, probably the biggest deal that I ever did was, um, this was whenever I was in 10th grade. Um, I was curious to see if I could figure out how to make nitroglycerin. You know, so like the best of both worlds for me, explosives and chemistry all at the same time. And so um, I figured it out. I reverse engineered the scientific notation for it and, and figured out what I would have to do for each step. And uh, so, you know, I talked my folks into taking me to the local hobby shop, which at the time was this place called um, Uptown Sales, which is literally across the parking lot now from where a new uh, nerd store is opening. And uh, I love that place. Lots of people in the area love that place. Um, and so you could buy all kinds of chemistry supplies there. And so I bought like a couple flasks and beakers. Um, I needed a, a cooling chamber and they just happened to have one of those. So, you know, I basically got everything that I needed. And a couple of my friends uh, came out, uh, um, Ray and John or Jim, I mean, and, uh, we got into a lot of trouble together. We were all nerds, excuse me. And, uh, so I set out to, um, to see if I could make nitroglycerin. And the, the real secret to nitroglycerin is that you have a, um, a, an acid blend of nitric and sulfuric acids, which I just happen to have and uh, you drip glycerin into it and then collect like it creates a chemical reaction that uh, creates a gas and then the gas you run through a cooling chamber to convert from gas into liquid and then the liquid uh, you distill and then ultimately through a repeated process like that um, you get nitroglycerin long story short but um, so I went through it now 10th grade, not really understanding fully what I was doing, but you know, I, I, I got the basics correct. Um, and we were successful by the way, we did create nitroglycerin and, uh, you know, we, we went through it pretty quickly <laughs> just because you could really do some fun things with it. Um, but I made the mistake of saying something to my chemistry teacher when I went to, uh, back to school on Monday and he flipped out and he's like, were you monitoring the temperature of the acid? Like, no, like that never even occurred to me. Well, come to find out that like nitric acid has a flashpoint um, that, you know, once it hits a certain temperature, it blows up. Apparently we didn't get to that temperature, but you know, we had to be close because I mean, we had it sitting on top of a Bunsen burner or, you know, you can regulate the flame height and stuff. Um, and so we were fortunate that we didn't blow ourselves to kingdom come, but we were also very successful. Uh, and we would do other th silly things like simple things like get, um, lye. You know, if you put lye in water, um, it creates hydrogen gas 
And so we get these five-gallon buckets of water and dump lye into it. Because back then you could get a lot of things that you can't get now, um, easily anyway. Um, and then we would have these, like, um, the 32-gallon trash bags, you know, that you get, the black ones with the drawstrings. So we would get those and put them over top of the five-gallon buckets and collect the hydrogen gas off of the chemical reaction and then tie them shut and poke like a little hole or two because like for hydrogen to ignite, it needs oxygen. Um, poke a hole or two and uh, put fuses on the end and light the fuses and then let them go. And so because hydrogen is lighter than air, it, you know, these 32-gallon uh, <laughs> Uh, trash bags will go floating up into the air and then whenever the uh, fuse the spark off of the fuse would hit it it would blow up basically catch on fire and it wasn't blow up like boom it was blow up like um, like this rolling fire like it was really unusual looking it just had this rolling effect whenever it caught on fire um, so that was me as a, as a kid and uh, after the, um, the whole nitroglycerin thing, I, I decided that it was probably a good idea for me to move away from explosives. I mean, I had like a breakdown on how to make, uh, how to manufacture TNT, um, but it just took too long, uh, like tw literally a 24 hour process and there were things you had to cook and I just didn't want to go there and I really wanted to get into trying to make mercuric oxide um, but I couldn't get enough mercury to do that and so ultimately it's like you know what maybe maybe the uh, this whole blowing stuff up thing isn't smart if I want to you know live the rest of my life so um, my friends and I decided to get into some other unusual things and it was really cool um, especially for high school students, you know, to do some experiments. We, um, of course, we did some of the typical predictable things, you know, like hook frog legs up to electrical sources, you know, to watch them jump and stuff. Um, but one of the cooler experiments that we did, which others have done, I've read reports online now, but, you know, so this was for me back in the late 70s, um, is that uh, my two best friends at the time, um, Jim and Ray. Uh, so Ray had, his grandmother had a lot of plants. And uh, so we went to his grandmother's house one day. And of course we had a lot of, uh, we had access to a lot of electronics, which electronics back in that day is different than today. But, you know, we had like... Uh, an oscilloscope and some things like that and so we hooked up these electronics to um, one of the plants that his grandmother had uh, and what we wanted to find out was whether we could measure a reaction uh, from the plant if it was being threatened that's what we wanted to find out so um, we spent some time talking to the plant, introducing ourselves to the plant. <laughs> I know it seems kind of weird, but we wanted to establish a baseline of what was normal, you know, from a reactionary perspective. And we didn't know if anything would even happen or not. Um, and so there was three of us and, uh, 
usually one person monitored the, the gear and then the other two, or we would like swap out and take turns walking into the room or doing things to the plant. And so we decided that since it was Ray's grandmother's plant, that he could be the bad guy uh, just because we thought that was funny somehow. And uh, so one the first thing we had Ray do was um, initially that we like when any of us would enter the room, the plants would not react at all. Um, and then because uh, we had like electrodes hooked up to it and stuff like little clamps. And then um, we got Ray a pair of scissors and he cut uh, a couple pieces of the leaves off, you know, and the the plant reacted, uh, you know, to him doing that. It was really interesting. And then um, later on, we, you know, we tried fire and, you know, different things like that, like threaten the plant with fire and everything, uh, which we had Ray do it. And so after that cycle of um, threatening the plant, what we decided to do was um, see if the plant would react to just us walking into the room. In other words, we wanted to see if it could recognize Ray without him doing anything to it. Um, so in a manner of speaking, I guess you could say we were trying to see if the plants would go into stress. Um, probably not stress like you and I, but you know. And so what we did was we, we changed the position of the plant and um, I would like walk into the room and nothing, you know, the plant wouldn't react. Um, Jim would walk into the room, the plant wouldn't react. Ray walks into the room, I mean, and he's still like, 15 feet maybe something like that 10 to 15 feet away but as soon as he walked into the room the uh the meters uh started reacting like the plant i forget what kind of plant we were using now um but the plant recognized him now obviously they don't have eyes so it wasn't like it could see him and I don't know like exactly I didn't pursue it later on and you know we were kids so there's a lot that we didn't know but um so we don't I didn't know like how he how the plant picked up on the fact that Ray had entered a room but the reality is and we tested it multiple times in multiple scenarios uh every time Ray walked into the room the plant reacted uh, and when we, uh, Jim and I walked into the room, it did not. And so, uh, to us, it was like successful, you know, it was a successful experiment. Um, we didn't take it to the next level just because, you know, it's like, oh, okay. So we learned that. I mean, we're like in 10th or 11th grade. So, you know, we were off to the next thing and we discovered eight millimeter movie projectors and cameras. So, you know, that was one of our later things was uh how could we make each other disappear and reappear and stuff like that but um so that was really cool that was something that i did like i said whenever i was a teenager uh that was really cool that didn't involve explosives just threatening plants um let's see what else 
Oh, there's another thing that we did um, that I thought was super cool. Um, Jim's dad had a cabin on a lake that wasn't too far from here. And so one weekend, the three of us uh, went up to the cabin um, for a weekend. So, well, I guess Jim's sister and brother were also there. So they were like the adults, so to speak, even though they were only a couple years older than us. And they were pretty much gone the whole time. So, you know, three boys, middle of the night. Um, And so we did all kinds of weird things. Like we went out in the middle of the night the one night in a boat to try to catch bullfrogs um, because, you know, we wanted to perform experiments on them. Uh, Fortunately for them, we didn't catch any. Uh, But it was still fun and kind of eerie because, you know, you have like the vapor coming up off of the water in the middle of the night because of the temperature and everything. But um, one thing that we did that was really cool, uh, we discovered the world of psychic phenomenon and wanted to explore that. And so we thought, you know, let's see uh, how, like, if somebody's holding up a card in the next room, if the other person can figure out what the card is. So we had, like, a regular deck of cards. It wasn't, like, ink blot shapes or, you know, weird stuff like that, uh, or, like, a picture of a train or, you know, a boat or a stop sign. You know, we didn't do anything like that. Um, we were actually doing, uh, like a standard 52 card playing card deck. And so we took turns and, um, uh, like one person say Ray would be on one side of the wall and me or Jim would be on the other side of the wall. And then Ray would hold up a card and we'd have and concentrate on it. And then we'd have to guess what the card is. And then um, he would write down whether it was right or wrong. And uh, we spent an entire weekend doing that, multiple times, multiple sessions. And uh, what was kind of cool was, um, cool for me anyway, was uh, Jim didn't have really great success with it. Uh, whenever Ray did it and Ray didn't really have uh, Ray was slightly more in tune I guess uh, than Jim was but whenever I was tested with it and we tested it multiple times um, I never had a a 100% success rate um, out of because we would go through the whole deck that's basically what it was we would go through the whole deck the best that I ever did um, that weekend was um, I think I missed four out of 52 so 48 cards right out of 52 um, was the best that I did which was super cool you know I mean I'd never done anything like that before it was just an innocent experiment you know for teenagers I was probably 17 then and uh you know, um, it was a lot of fun. The mistake that I made, however, was going home and telling my parents about it because, um, you know, very strict Christian home, um, very much involved in the church, all that kind of stuff. So, but, you know, I'm curious. So anything is fair game, uh, including that kind of thing. And, uh, I, I remember telling my mom and dad, it's like, 
It's like, so what did you boys do all weekend? You know, it's like, oh, we did this really cool experiment and blah, 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 you know. <laughs> and so I told him what we did. It was like my mom's face just like went white, you know. And she's like, you can't do stuff like that. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, well, from their perspective, it was evil. You know, I was tapping into the dark side. You know, the devil was the one. Demons were revealing these secrets to me. And I was opening myself up to, you know, uh, not good things. And, I mean, they, they were pretty hardcore on it. And uh, to the point where it's like, fine. And I never did anything more with it because of their reaction until uh, much later. Um, you know, after, well, years and years after, but it was, it was still a really cool experiment at the time. And I, I've often wondered, like, had that been encouraged instead of shot down, um, how things might be different today for me? I mean, I've, I've gone through periods of time where I've embraced stuff like that or not, um, times when I embrace it and then things get a little too weird. And so, you know, I kind of turn away from it. Um, but yet the times, uh, whenever I do open myself up to that kind of flow, um, it's pretty awesome. I mean, I shared before about how, um, you know, there's been times when I've been able to like point at street lights and knock them out and stuff like that. And then there's other times where it's like nothing, zero zip nada, uh, because, you know, I, my experience, and I've shared some stories on past shows, my experience is that, you know, you can get on the radar of, of uh, you know, otherworldly powers that be, and those experiences aren't all necessarily positive, and... Uh, so there's been times where I've definitely closed myself off. And uh, I, I mean, even I, I'm much, much open again to that than what I, you know, have been in previous years, just kind of, kind of started opening up to it again. Like, why should I push this down? You know, it's just more a matter of maturing it at all. But like I had something fairly recent happen where, um, this wasn't an experiment for me, but my ex-wife, uh, Deborah was always very, um, very in tune with the other side. Um, very much a seer kind of person, um, but didn't know how to handle it. Didn't know how to control it. Um, still, still don't honestly, but experiences that she had have been really over the top. Um, but there's been multiple occasions where, uh, like relatives of mine would appear to her in dreams with messages for me. And, uh, <laughs> that happened fairly recent and she told me and everything. And, and I'm like, well, I wonder why they came to you. You know, I mean, we're not even married anymore. And she's like, yeah, I thought the same thing. And I actually asked you know, why are you telling me this? Why not just go to Tony? And, uh, the, the response, I forget which relative it was now. 
um, my great-grandmother or something. But uh, they told her, because he's not paying attention right now. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, great. Okay, so I have these messages coming from the beyond. And uh, I'm not really paying attention. So maybe I need to be um, paying attention more. But anyway, um, I would like to say that uh, in some respects that my curiosity has waned a little bit, but that's really not true. If anything, it's increased. And, um, you know, we all have those things in our lives. Uh, perhaps some of you were not the experimenting type or the curious type or whatever. But one of the things that I love about um, embracing the unknown, if you will, uh, or trying to find answers, whether it's metaphysical or physical or whatever, is uh, like I, I personally believe that we're each innately curious, you know, about something. You know, we want to understand why, the why. It's one of the reasons why I love genealogy research so much is, um, you know, it's like this quest, you know, to discover the unknown, to find treasure. But the treasure is your family. Um, and it's uh, more than not easier said than done, especially once you get back a few generations or if there's adoptions or people die and you know, all those kinds of things, um, it can be really challenging at times. Um, and for those of you who do genealogy research, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But still, there's this, like, curiosity. Um, it's probably why I also relate to Indiana Jones. Like, that's definitely been, you know, a movie series that I've enjoyed. Um, just anybody who's searching for the unknown. And I remember standing outside at night, looking up at the stars, going, why go to, like literally saying out loud to God or whoever's listening, you know, why go to all the trouble to put all those stars and galaxies and planets and everything up there if we're stuck here? You know, it's like it can't just be so that you could say, you know, that scripture in the Bible where it talks about Abraham's seed being like the stars or whatever. Um, it's like, surely you didn't put all those stars up there just so whoever wrote that part of the Bible could make that statement. Like, that seems stupid to me, like a real waste. Um, so there has to be more to it. But yet here we are stuck on this rock. And there's all of this extra out there. And we can't get to it. At least, as far as we know, we can't get to it. There's a lot of different ways of getting there. Um, and uh, I've never really gotten a good response. I've had some very interesting experiences, um, you know, that involve travel and stuff. But course right now my flash player has to update um but anyway curiosity um experimenting uh it's real fun uh because we tend to be such creatures of habit just even something as simple as trying a new food um taking a different direction to work um what I found is that experimenting really serves as a great pattern interrupt and um, pattern interrupts are awesome. One of my favorite things 
honestly, because uh, we get so locked into our habits and status quo and all of that that we just go into this autopilot phase very often and time flies by and life is always the same, you know, and we think that, you know, creativity is, uh, you know, choosing mango over strawberry whenever we get frozen yogurt. And, you know, that's about the extent of it. When in reality, uh, pattern interrupts really serve to shake us out of the norm, whatever that is. Um, and so, you know, for some people, norm may be living a life of stress um, and then our body resets to a new normal and so then that's normal even though it's not and so one of the things that I've always felt compelled with is that I don't want to be normal <laughs> you can take that however you want to um, but you know normal is extremely overrated it's safe no doubt about it um, but and, and trust me when I tell you, I have a very strong self-preservation thing, just like most folks. Um, but there's so much more to life. You know, I mean, what would happen if, right? The ultimate game. What would happen if I did this? What would happen if I tried that? And, uh, you know, like one of the ways that I've played that game, so to speak, or you could refer to it as experimenting, is, you know, what would happen if I held my hand out and the glass really did move? You know, uh, like telekinesis. Um, what, what would happen if I actually had the ability to move objects with my mind, you know, or whatever? Um, we think, oh, well, that's impossible, you know, or it's evil, or it's whatever. But what would happen if you could do it? And um, and why not try? And so, you know, you could have like a glass sitting on the table and hold your hand out with your fingers open and concentrate on the glass sliding across the table into your hand. And maybe you try it once or twice and it doesn't happen. Maybe you try it a hundred times and it doesn't happen. But what if it does? And so that is how I think, you know, is I think in the phrase of, I wonder what would happen if, and then what if it does? Um, now, have, uh, have I been able to get a glass to slide across a table? Um, as you probably imagine, I'm, I've tried many, many times. I've had dreams about it. I've had, you know, all kinds of stuff where I've actually done it in the dream. Um, I've wakened up out of dreams knowing exactly how to do it. Um, but it's like the middle of the night, so I don't get up to try. And then come morning, like I don't remember. And does that mean that it's never going to happen? Like, I don't know what I would do with it if it actually did work. You know, if I was actually able to move and I'm not talking like magic, like stage magic, I'm talking about like for real moving objects with your mind, um, as an experiment. Um, if I actually did it, um, after I, you know, was done being shocked and 
telling Kristen and all that kind of stuff. Holy crap, I just moved to glass. You know, um, <laughs> I'd probably see if I could repeat, you know, any good science experiment, you want repeatable results. So I'd probably try to repeat it again, try different glasses, different objects, all that kind of thing. That's what I would do. You know, oh, cool. Here's a Bugs Bunny. Let's see if it'll work on him. Here's a pencil. Let's try it on him. Um, let's see if I can do it with my car, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, experiment, you know. And uh, who knows, you know, what we what's possible for us? Who really knows what's possible for us? It certainly isn't, um, you know, the way we think it is. Um, if that were true, then... You know, there wouldn't be things in place that try to keep us in fear, in the, our status quo, keep us distracted, keep us stupid. You know, I mean, it's like, I don't know how far out you all believe, but like you have things like uh, people putting fluoride into our water. You know, what's the whole purpose of that? It's freaking rat poison, right? But yet they do it. What is a result of fluoride in our water how does fluoride affect us well for one thing it calcifies the pineal gland in, the, in our brains which some people have connected that to supernatural abilities so uh, can you imagine how government would be if you know a large group of us had the ability to tap into supernatural potential um, uh, power would change and they don't want that uh, that's one argument Okay, one example. But I think that there's so much more. I mean, who says that we can't fly? You know, I mean, Superman can fly. Of course, he's a fictitious character. And I know that. <laughs> one of my buddies, though, one time asked me, he's like, um, he's like, I had a dream last night and I could fly in the dream. So does that mean that somewhere I believe that I can do it for real? And I'm like, I don't know, dude, try you know, and that's just kind of the way I like to approach life is A, don't tell me I can't do something and B, never say never. Who says it's impossible? You know, impossible is a word that's overrated uh, and you don't know unless you experiment. You don't know unless you try. That's how inventions happen. It used to be impossible to run a four minute mile, but now it happens all the time. Once one person did it, now it's possible. Um, and so what if that one person to do the next thing that's impossible was you, you know, um, depending on what conspiracy theory website you're looking at, um, you know, they say that, uh, zero point energy is impossible yet. There's lots of claims that it's already been done. They say that cold fusion is impossible, but yet there's lots of claims that it's been done. Um, you know, there's a lot of things like that. Um, warp drive, interstellar space travel, uh, multidimensional travel. All of those things uh, we're told are impossible, but yet there's others who say that they've done it. So, you know, is it fake news? Um, and which one is fake news? You know, who knows? Um, I know that there are some things that are possible. I shared a story before. I don't know if I've shared it on this show, but... Um, whenever I was real little, defined as like a year or two old, uh, I think I did share this before, but my grandfather, 
had built a carburetor that would get ridiculous amounts of miles to the gallon. And uh, this was like very early 60s. And um, my dad worked with him on it. And uh, to test it out, they, uh, I, I don't remember what car my, uh, my grandfather and grandmother had, but they uh, drove to Florida uh, and back on a tank of gas. One tank of gas. Now, the, the cars back then were a lot heavier than they are today, so that's a big deal. You know, hundreds of miles to the gallon that they got um, off of this carburetor. So my grandfather filed a patent and because uh, he figured, you know, I'm onto something here. And he was. Uh, come to find out later that there's uh, quite a number of people who filed patents on something very similar. Um, high mileage carburetors. And uh, short time after, he was visited by men in black, quote unquote. You know, guys in black suits, sunglasses, the whole nine yards. And he was threatened to never pursue it, never do anything with it again, to destroy everything he had developed, all of that. And it seems very movie-esque, you know, like, yeah, right, you know. Um, but uh, first of all, I talked to too many people in my family who knew that it was true. But my dad, who worked with my grandfather, it, like, he wouldn't talk about it. And you know, me being the experimenter that I was, maybe I got it from my grandfather, actually. I didn't really think about that before. Because um, he very much was, my grandfather very much was an experimenter. And one of his uh, favorite phrases was from Henry Ford. Um, which my paraphrase of it is, there are those who believe that they can and those who believe that they can't. And both are correct. That's a Tony paraphrase of a Henry Ford statement. But my grandmother from what, or my grandfather, from what I've been told, I'm too young to remember it, but from what I've been told from my mom and dad and others is that my grandfather would quote that all the time. And his position was he believed that he can, you know, uh, which is very cool. Very much like me, actually. Um, that's funny because he died when I was three, I think. So there was no direct influence there uh, from that perspective. So maybe there was something to uh, genetic memory. Who knows? We'll save that discussion for another day. Because um, I have some very interesting thoughts about that. But anyway, um, I could never get my dad to tell me what he did. And I mean, trust me, I asked over and over and over as an adult, like, you know, we're not talking about, you know, the kid who asked, are we there yet? You know, 50 times. Um, this is as an adult and dad would never tell me. And so finally, I think I was in my early 40s. Dad finally told me. And uh, I mean, he didn't go into a lot of great detail. He just told me the the basics of it all, the foundation of what he did. And of course, engines are a lot different today than what they were in the late 50s, early 60s. And so, you know, what my grandfather did 
um, wouldn't work in today's engines. Um, it was also a bit dangerous <laughs> from what the way Dad told it to me. Um, it was about increasing air pressure and vaporizing gas in a different way and stuff. Um, to increase, uh, it would minimize the burn through, but increase the the pressure, you know, that the engine output. But uh, using some kind of a, an electrified plate or something, not unlike fuel injection today, um, but a little bit different. Uh, but anyway experimenting now in his case you know it didn't end up so well um but even like with my um first mentor that i talked about before uh, mr hoke uh that guy just experimented on stuff all the time um and so you know between my grandfather and him i know i got a really honest uh in just wanting to find out things as a matter of fact mr hoke is where i got <laughs> He had several books on how to build explosives of all kinds. So, you know, that's how I learned about nitroglycerin, or not nitroglycerin, but um, uh, TNT and some of the others. Because it literally had formulas in there. Um, but this is also the same guy that built a, you know, a particle beam generator or accelerator and had it at his house <laughs> so um experimenting it's a good thing and what's great is that we can take experimenting in a lot of different levels it's one of the reasons why you know i think i've had so much success with like illustrating kids books using photographs and stuff that all came from experimenting so these days, now that I'm in my 50s, I'm not so much interested in chemicals or anything like that, um, or math per se, but I'm still experimenting, and you should be as well. You know, I wonder what would happen if, wonder what would happen if I use this photograph with this software, even though it's not what it's meant for, wonder what would happen if. Um, wonder what would happen if I emailed people on this this day versus this day or if I handled it like this versus that it's all experimenting right so if you're not experimenting in some form or another in a way that makes sense for you like that you're interested in um, maybe it's a hobby maybe it's business um, you know whatever uh, a lot of the movers and the shakers the people who are um, creating the things that everyone else follows, they're experimenters. You know, they're testing constantly. That's the phraseology that we use these days. You know, I'm split testing. All that split testing is, is experimenting. <laughs> you know, um, wonder what would happen if I run this ad set on Facebook this way to this audience versus running it with a different audience. I wonder what would happen if, right? Wonder what what would happen if I use the exact same wording on an ad set in Google uh, Google AdWords versus Facebook versus Instagram. What kind of results would I get? It's experimenting. Okay? And so experimenting really is a part of the human psyche. It it's part of who we are. And so if there isn't a way 
that you're experimenting right now in your life, whatever. It can be random. It could be metaphysical. It could be supernatural. It could be, like I said, working with ad sets, uh, which is something that I've been doing. Um, if you're not doing something experimental, what can you do? You know, um, because there's more benefit to experimenting than just the satisfaction of discovery. Um, it does something for us. I think we are innately wired to be experimenters. You know, and maybe it's because, you know, aliens have screwed around and experimented with our DNA and so we get it from them. Who the hell knows? <laughs> you know, um, I would tend to believe that there's an element of that to it, but that's just, you know, because I believe in all that stuff and have had experiences with that. But uh, whether it's aliens or God or whoever, um, I mean, God's approach to experimenting was a lot different. He just said, let there be light and there was light. And then he made man in his own image and voila, you know, whatever. Um, but it was still a form of experimenting. You know, we only heard about the success experiments. What about the ones that didn't work out so good? You know, maybe that's where the stupid people came from. <laughs> uh, yeah, that could get me in trouble. But, um, but in any case, my challenge to you today, and I want to get to comments here uh, in just a moment, um, is if you're not experimenting on something in your life, what can you do to experiment? You know, try something you never tried before and try it hundreds of times, maybe. You know, not just, oh, I did that and it didn't work. Um, most experiments don't necessarily work the first time around uh, because there is this element of curiosity. There is an element of discovery, but there's also, depending on the kinds of experiments that you're doing, um, belief systems factor into it. Well, this isn't really going to work, but whatever. Um, I remember uh, years ago, I was helping a friend of mine pick up some drywall at Lowe's. And um, I got the bright idea to take two sheets of the drywall and scoot it down onto the cart at the same time, rather than just doing one, because I figured it would save time. Uh, the only problem is that as I started to slide it down, the cart kicked out and um, the drywall was uh, shifting in such a way that I was afraid that the corner was going to hit the floor and break it. And so to prevent that from happening, which by the way, two sheets of drywall is kind of heavy. Um, so to prevent that from happening, I just locked in my left arm, figuring that you know, that would prevent it from continuing the fall. Except that the uh, the weight of the drywall with, you know, the uh, help of gravity uh, was greater <laughs> than my strength. And so what happened was um, I popped all the ligaments in my left arm. They all came like right where, you know, my uh, inside, whenever you bend your arm, you have uh, like where your elbow is, except on the inside, you have ligaments. And so all those ligaments on my left arm popped. 
and uh, went up into my muscle uh, like a ball, <laughs> like a ball of rubber, boing, like cutting a rubber band. And um, uh, needless to say, I nearly passed out <laughs> and all that. And my arm really looked goofy. And uh, so I went to the doctor and long story short, I had to have them all stretched back down into place and screwed into my bone using um, platinum screws, I think is what they used. Um, and so I have a nice little scar there on my left arm. But what was interesting was that whenever, this is going back to experimenting, um, whenever I went through physical therapy, uh, I remember, well, first of all, my arm was in a cast for like six or eight weeks. And um, I was pretty much over it. If you've ever had a cast before, you know, once you're toward the end, you know, you're pretty much over it because uh, it was summertime and all of that. And uh, so I was pretty much over it. So I remember going to get the cast cut off um, and I was still married to my first wife then. And they cut off the cast. And uh, he, the doctor gave me the option of getting a cut off that day or leaving it on another week or two. And I, you know, I really wanted it off. And so he cut it off and then left the room. And almost immediately, just with how my arm felt, I felt like I made a mistake. You know, it's like maybe I should have left it on there a little bit longer. Um, but. Nonetheless, I had to go to uh, physical therapy for, I forget how many weeks, a couple months. So eight or 10 weeks, 12 weeks, something like that, every week. And he would give me these exercises to do with like the different colored rubber bands and stuff. Well, they're not like rubber band, like we wrap around a newspaper, but you know, they're thicker bands for exercising. And they told me that I would never have 100% mobility. Um, and I had numbness because they, whenever they sewed them in, they had to cut in the nerves and, um, they weren't sure that I would ever get feeling back in my hand and all that kind of stuff, which I did. Um, but they said I would never get a hundred percent mobility and it's like challenge thrown down the gauntlet. You know, it's like, oh, well, I'm going to prove you wrong because that's who I am, you know? So I'm going to do a little experiment. And the experiment is that every day I'm going to put my hand over my arm so that it can feel the heat of my hand. And I'm going to speak to my arm and say, you're going to get 100% mobility. You have 100% mobility. So it was this experiment. And I did it every day. And um, I remember going to the physical therapist and he's like, um... Because they like first thing that they do whenever I go in there is he would have me stretch out my arm and then they would measure it, you know what percentage of restoration I would have. And uh, he he said, um, "So what are you doing?" And I said, "What are you talking about?" And he's like, "You shouldn't have this level of mobility at this period of time." He's like, "You're weeks ahead." And he's like, I'm concerned that you're doing something that could hurt yourself, you know, that could cause your ligaments to become dislodged again. And I'm like, I'm not doing anything, you know, other than the exercises that you gave me. And so, okay. So then I, the next time I go in, same thing. 
he's like, okay, so you have to be doing something because this is just not possible. Like the amount of mobility that you have at this period of time should be impossible. So what are you doing? And I said, well, I am actually doing something. And he's like, I knew it. You need to stop it. And I said, you need to hear what I'm doing. And he's like, okay, tell me. So I told him what I just told you a little bit ago. You know, I'm putting my hand on my arm and I'm speaking to my arm. That's all I'm doing. Truth be told, I really wasn't doing the exercises that much like he wanted me to. Just because, well, A, they were painful. And B, I just didn't feel like it. But in any case, this time he says, well... Whatever you're doing, it seems to be working, so keep doing it. Okay, well, I plan to, you know. So, long story short, I finished my physical therapy three or four weeks early. I gained 100% mobility with my arm, which they said it, that would never happen. And uh, the guy was blown away. He said... Um, do you mind if I share your story with other people? I'm like, if it helps other people, go for it, you know? Um, but it was an experiment. Did I know it would work? No, but I didn't know it wouldn't work. And that's kind of the point of an experiment, right? Uh, you don't know if it's going to work or if it won't. But uh, to me, just making a guess, oh, well, this probably won't work anyway. Like, what's the benefit of that? You know, just assuming that it's not going to probably work. Why? Because you've never seen it before or because everyone has said it's impossible. And so that's a really good reason to not try. You know, that to me is ridiculous, um, you know, to not experiment uh, because that's who we are. You know, we are experimenting creators. You know, that's who we are. And so... You know, again, like I said earlier, that's my challenge to you is how can you experiment? Um, and if it doesn't work out the way you think it's going to or as quickly, you know, uh, we often talk about, you know, the whole invention of the light bulb thing and, you know, all the times that he tried to make it and it didn't work. Um, you know, why not approach life the same way? Um, that... You know, I wonder what would happen if. You should ask yourself that question in some form every day. You know. Because, truth be told, um, most of what we believe is going to happen in our lives is based on zero facts. It's based on imagination. It's based on what other people said. It's based on status quo. It's based on whatever. It is not based in reality. You know, it's like, but, you know, I only have $20 in the bank right now. And, you know, what if something else happens? Like something breaks down and it requires that money that I'm not going to be able to pay my bills or I'm not going to have food on the table and on and on and on. And we create this amazing, untrue uh, story in our heads to justify how we can or can't do something, you know, and it's not true. And, uh, I'm not, um, disqualified from that. 
uh, I just don't give it any time or uh, time or space in my brain. Um, and if something, if it does get to the point, like here, here's something about me, and, and I can say this just because it happened recently. Um, if if I'm worried about something, something is seriously wrong. And it isn't what I'm worried about. Like something is not right. Because I do not worry. I used to all the time. Um, and uh, whenever my grandkiddos are seriously sick or something, that's stressful to me just because, you know, I can't control the situation. But um, in any other case, if I'm feeling anxiety or panic or whatever, something is seriously wrong. And usually what I found is that uh, it means that there's some kind of an energetic block or energy flow thing. Um, you know, people come into your house and visit you um, and they leave little critters behind that you can't see, um, like little energy markers or whatever, spirits, whatever. Uh, you interact with people on a daily basis and you can take on their own grief and stress and stuff. You know, you're standing in line behind somebody at Target and they're bitching and moaning about how their life sucks all the time. You can take that on, especially if you're empathetic. Take that on to yourself and all of a sudden things start going differently. Well, what if you started whenever you feel those things? What if you did a little experiment and said, I wonder what would happen if... I didn't choose to believe those things. I wonder what would happen if I took some sage and lit it and put the smoke all around me. I wonder what would happen if I started stating all the things that I'm grateful for out loud. You know, they're all experiments. Life is an experiment. And uh, I found, and ultimately, going back to the story, just a couple of weeks ago, I think I might have even shared this uh, in a previous show, I don't recall. Um, I think I did when we were talking about the location stuff. Um, you know, like if there's certain things going on between Kristen and I or certain thoughts that we're really struggling with or whatever, something is off in our house. Um, and unfortunately, it, it often is due to certain people visiting that who visit on occasion. Not that we necessarily want to stop them from visiting, but just understanding that they bring things with them. Okay? It it's a thing. It really does happen. If you're not paying attention to the kinds of things that people bring into your house, we need to have a bigger conversation because it really does influence your sacred environment, you know? Um, and so now we just know, oh, well, so-and-so is visiting, then we need to, you know, get some sage and smudge the house and whatever. Uh, and it, like, heads all the little creepy crawlers off at the pass, and it don't get to the point where all of a sudden we're feeling stress or anxiety. For us, with that particular person, it takes about two weeks, you know, if we don't deal with it. And, uh, and that's been proven through experimentation, by the way. Um, multiple times, every case, two weeks. So now it's more like, okay, they're coming. We need to deal with this and be done with it. That way, two weeks from now, we're not freaking out. 
Um, so again, some really good qualities for experimenting. A lot to be said for experimentation. Um, so anyway, let me uh, look at the comments and questions here. <laughs> Mary said, I think you should take a poll as to how many thought aliens. <laughs> I, I've shared a little bit about my uh, interactions with aliens. Uh, William asked a good question. Why did you stop flying rockets since you still have them in your office? Um... It probably is, I would say it's a combination of two things, three things. One is uh, time, although I could certainly make time. Um, probably the bigger one is having a location uh, to do it. Because, uh, you know, like where we live across the street, it's really open and all of that because it's farm. But it's not my farm, you know, so I can't just, you know, stroll out into the cornfield and say, hey, you know, do you mind if I launch rockets? Although there is a park that I could probably do it because I have several um, and we actually sell them in our toy store. So it's kind of a win there. But probably the biggest thing, honestly, is because I discovered drones. <laughs> and so I have a DJI Mavic Pro. And uh, I have zero interest in blowing that thing up. Cost a thousand bucks, but um, with the drones, I can shoot 4K video and all that kind of stuff. And so that is probably what is the larger contributing factor: is that it feels it fills that need within me to explore. Um, and uh, I mean, I can't get the drone up as high as. A model rocket because you're limited to 400 feet that you can send up a drone and some of the multi-stage rockets that I used to launch would get up to 1500 or more but um, anyway so now I just appreciate them I have this uh, this Saturn V rocket model it's not a launchable rocket but um, it's a model of one I saw it on um, uh, Big Bang Theory <laughs> they had one but it's like uh, five feet tall. It's big. It's like the big Saturn V, and it's got the uh, Skylab, I think, on the top of it. It's pretty cool. And then I have a, an Estes uh, Saturn V here in my office. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> Pamela says, I think all geeks have chemistry sets when they're young. I still have one. <laughs> honestly um, it's in the basement and I keep it tucked away but Kathleen says too bad you didn't get that on video the tiny flaming beads yeah um, video back in those days was like the uh, 8 millimeter <laughs> movie cameras <laughs> William says as a former fire marshal your stories are very interesting to me. Well, I'll tell you what, um, like I said at the beginning, the stuff that I did as a kid, um, I'd be in jail today. <laughs> I'd be on a terrorist watch list or something. Even though I never had any kind of intent to hurt anybody, uh, including myself, 
Uh, it's just we live in a different world, you know. I mean, it's back then. You're talking. Well, let's see. You're talking forty years ago or so. Um, it was a different world back then compared to today, especially living in a small town in rural Pennsylvania. You can get away with a lot more than um, than what I can today. Uh, let's see. Tony says, uh, on recording plant reactions, can I send you an MP3 recording I have on this? You'll find it interesting. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know if we're friends on Facebook or not. You could send a private message there. Um, and I'll definitely get it there, uh, if you want. Uh, Thumper says the book Secret Life of Plants talks about what you did. Yeah, I actually came across that book years later. Um, it, and it was like, holy crap, that's what we did. It was really fascinating. Um, and William says, uh, since you are able to knock out streetlights, once you find the right, free, uh, right energy frequency, you'll be able to do it. Yeah, at the time, like, I didn't realize that it was, uh, that any of that played into it. I mean, I understand it more now. Um, and I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine, uh, somebody that she knew that could like focus, uh, on a piece of paper and cause it to burst into flames. And, uh, I've never been able to do that. I mean, Lord knows I tried. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, the streetlight thing is pretty funny. And sometimes it even happens really random, like even now. Like, God forbid I park under a streetlight. 99% um, of the time, it will go out if I park. Just parking, you know. It's, which is kind of annoying because streetlights do serve a purpose, and that's to illuminate stuff in the dark, you know. And so whenever you have streetlights randomly going out, whenever you're parking under them, it makes, well, you know, things harder. But anyway, <laughs> um, Irene says the book Psychic Warrior by David Morehouse might interest you. I've not read that one. And uh, Guinea Pigs by Dr. John Hall might also interest you. I'll have to check those out. Thanks for recommending them. <laughs> I like this comment from Lourdes. I would expect something like this from you, so I appreciate you you posting it. She says, "I wonder if the plant was reacting to your friend or if your if you uh your observance of the plant was causing uh the change, you know, quantum physics stuff, and how does one account for the observer in any experiment?" that's such a great question and I really appreciate you sharing that because there is such a thing as the observer effect and who knows I mean you may be right it could have like if Jim and I weren't there but Ray walked into the room would the reaction have been the same or did it happen because we were there you know I love it 
Um, and she also asked about how do you protect yourself from other people's energy before the fact. Yeah, I'll probably talk about that another time because um, we don't have time today. But that is a thing. I mean, and it's a great question. Um, I'd like to say that sometimes there, you know, that I always get that right. Sometimes I don't. Um, but it is a big deal, especially somebody who is very empathetic, which Kristen is like that. You know, um, you can really pick up on negative energy in a way. And that sounds kind of woo-woo, but it actually happens to all of us. I mean, if you've gone into a room where there was an angry person and all of a sudden you're feeling angry yourself and you're not sure why or later on, you know, you're driving home from there and somebody cuts you off and you become a, uh, you know, monster road rage person. Um, that's what we're talking about, right? Uh, you're picking up on their energy. So I think that'd make a great topic for a future show for sure. Yeah, there is, um, there, <laughs> Thumper just saw the equation. Um, there is an equation actually on my slide right above, um, the N and the E. Um, and it's actually, um, one of the equations for the event horizon of a black hole. Um, William asks, how does the negative visiting person leave themselves behind? Um, usually it's just like, um, it's like an energetic signature. You know, if you think of energy on a scale of like zero being neutral um, with the upper level of the scale going up positive uh, with perhaps love at the top, just we'll use that as the example, and hate at the bottom of the negative part of the scale. And then emotions, emotions are very, very powerful, you know, more than just, you know, I'm happy today, yay, you know, whatever. Um, but from a, an energy perspective, and we could probably get into even frequency and all of that, but um, the same is true whether like an angry person comes into your house or an extremely happy person comes into your house. You know, whenever you're around somebody who's incredibly optimistic and can do and happy and they love themselves and all of that, it inspires us, doesn't it? You know, it's why people spend thousands of dollars going to Tony Robbins and everybody else. Um, it's why, you know, we would much prefer spending time around people who are like us or even more so, you know, the whole um, sum total of your five closest friends thing. Um, we want to uh, spend time with smart people who challenge us whenever they talk or who think positively like we do as opposed to being around a group of people who do nothing but bitch and moan all day long right and their life sucks and nothing that they do ever goes well like would you rather spend time with those folks or the uplifting folks the answer is obvious so why is that well it's because we're picking up vibes see we have the language already we're getting a negative vibe or, you know, whatever from these people, which is nothing more than just an energetic signature uh, somewhere on the plane of positive to negative. Given my choice, I would much rather go with 
positive, encouraging people any day of the week over people who are stuck in a negative um, environment. Uh, Leslie says that Saturn is from um, Huntsville, Alabama, about an hour away from me. You should come to the Space and Rocket Center. That I've never been there, and that is very near the top of my bucket list. It's something that I've always wanted to do, is to go there, and I just haven't had an opportunity yet. <laughs> Gary says... Uh, can you uh, put up a picture or video of your office? Um, I can't right now, and my office is a little messy. Um, but what I'll do is uh, I, I'll post some photos in the uh, Facebook group for, for the show of some of the uh, interesting collections that I have in my office because I have a lot of things from uh, books to toys to rocks dinosaurs, trains, rockets, robots, lots of robots, um, Star Wars toys, <laughs> you name it. Oh, you're not on Facebook. Okay, so um, you can just send it to, um, uh, this is for Tony, uh, tonyladig at gmail.com. Just my first and last name at Gmail. William says, if you can knock out streetlights just by parking under them, you must have one hell of an energy field around you. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, it's been that way. Maybe that's why, you know, I've gotten the attention of, you know, other things in the past. Um, but yeah, I mean, one thing that I've never really gotten into and I've always wanted to, and I just haven't yet is a uh, Krillian photography, you know, where you electrically charge like leaves and stuff and get their auras. I've always wanted to do that and I just haven't. Um, and Lori asks, do you buy your sage from an online store? Or do you know a good store to buy it from? Um, there's a couple native elders at a few of the powwows that I go to every year um, that I usually buy from because they have lots. And so, like, I don't buy it on a regular basis because I usually buy, like, five pounds at a time. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, like, ten braids of sweet grass and that kind of thing. Uh, so I don't buy it real often, but whenever I do, I usually get it from Native Elders. But you can buy it online. I mean, it's all the same, honestly. The, the one reason why I like buying it from them as opposed to just, like, getting it off of Amazon is because they still follow the traditions of like how to pick it um, because there is a tradition to it you know like a certain type certain time of day and uh, from a certain direction and all that kind of stuff because sage is a lot like people um, it's a plant that's interconnected like if you see a bush of sage in the desert or whatever um, or you see several uh, bushes every single one of them is connected you know they're all related it's one of the reasons why it's considered a sacred plant um and so there are certain ceremonies that you know if you follow native traditions 
should be observed whenever you're harvesting sage. And so I prefer to buy it from people who honor those traditions. But that's just me. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's more powerful or that it works better or smells different. It's just my preference. you know. So whenever they're harvesting the sage, they're doing it, like I said, from a specific direction, specific time of day. They're leaving tobacco um, in its place as a way of saying thank you to Mother Earth and all of that. Alrighty. All right, Tony, I'll, I'll definitely uh, look for it. Uh, Thumper says, do thermography. It shows your entire energy on what parts they take a picture of. Yeah, I, I have, I actually got a little uh, flare, uh, flare device for my iPhone. Um, and uh, I haven't had much time, or I haven't taken much time to experiment with it, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> I remember, first thing I took picture of with it was uh, Kristen, <laughs> you know, uh, and it was pretty wild. And then my uh, Mercedes, just because I hadn't driven it like the whole day, but yet, even though the engine was cold, it was still not. And then the th third thing I think I observed with it uh, was the tree across the street and that was probably the coolest of all everything that I photographed with it so far was the trees uh, it was just really fascinating Uh, Kathleen says there's an old cable show called Rocket City Rednecks where a couple NASA rocket scientists in Alabama do all kinds of hilarious experiments, including building a rocket, solar-powered RV to watch stock car races, an armored pickup, and so on. Um, the dad was a machinist for NASA, so he can fabricate a lot of their ideas. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. And... Uh, Irene shares, and we'll wrap things up with this comment. Uh, whenever, when I, uh, when driving home from work in New York years ago, I noticed streetlights going out just as I approached them. One night, I got home, got out of my car, and all of the streetlights in the development went out. Uh, yeah, I, I could definitely relate to that. And like when it happens once or twice, it's like, oh wow, that's kind of weird. Um, and then you don't think anything more of it. When it keeps happening then it gets more interesting. And I remember years ago when I was in the church, you know, they believed that if somebody was standing under like one of the lights in, in the sanctuary or whatever, and the light would flicker, it meant that they were a witch. Like really? So, you know, I'm not a witch, you know, and you know, who knows what definition of witch even means these days. But I've had it happen, you know, where I'm standing directly under a light, even in a building, and all of a sudden it just starts flickering or, you know, goes off or whatever. And, you know, I'm not quote unquote evil. So I don't know. I think there's, there's a lot that we don't understand, and there's certainly a lot more for us to discover. Um, so hopefully uh, in the next week, 
coming week here that we have, uh, a bunch of you will discover some new and interesting things. So that's all that I have for right now. Thank you all for uh, joining me here. And uh, we'll gather again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. So thanks, everyone. <laughs>